you know, we've been discussing this since last January. You know, I mean, I mean, almost every time we've talked, uh, we've talked about inflation. We've talked about central banks underestimating it. We've talked about governments just not. I mean, Boris Johnson, as recently as October, saying inflation isn't going to happen. So we've been ahead of the game and ahead of the curve on this. But I think the truth is. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, before we get to the topic that we had penciled in, which is the rerun of the Cuban Missile Crisis with the roles reversed, I want to get to something that is probably going to be more important, at least let's hope it's going to be more important, and it is this outbreak of inflation hitting Germany. Now, we're looking at producer price inflation here, not consumer price inflation, better known as factory gate prices. These are the prices that companies are paying. And because of that, it's likely that UK companies are also paying these prices. Now, these inflation figures that have come out from Germany are are pretty much jaw-dropping to me, and I'm going to get your comments on them. Um, as somebody who was you know, active in industrial metals trading, and I think you had some business dealings in Germany as well. Lots. But first, the figures are month over month producer price inflation in Germany of 5% relative to the forecast, and this is the key, of 0.8%, so six times uh, the expected amount, which took year over year price inflation, so the 12-month figure, to 24.2% relative to the expected 19.3%. This is the highest reading ever recorded for this index, and it goes all the way back to the late 1940s. Now, as far as I'm concerned, this inflation story is just getting completely out of control. Uh, We should mention, first of all, though, that producer price inflation is different to consumer price inflation, but companies tend to pass on the costs uh, and producer price inflation over time to consumer price inflation. So there is a connection here to the prices we're paying. But the real point is that that this surge is not just not transitory, it's it's just getting completely out of hand. Yeah, I mean, Nick, you know, we've been discussing this since last January. You know, I mean, I mean, almost every time we've talked, uh, we've talked about inflation, we've talked about central banks underestimating it, we've talked about governments, just not. I mean, Boris Johnson, as recently as October, saying inflation isn't going to happen. So we've been ahead of the game and ahead of the curve on this. But I think the truth is that even you or I, you and I are surprised at the sheer extent of some of these markers. Now, I think the real concern is is twofold. One, that there's nearly always a lag time between producer prices and consumer prices. And so, you know, you could look at five, six, seven percent inflation across the UK, America, Germany and think, well, okay, it's the highest for 30 odd years, but it's not too bad. But I think there is a very reasonable expectation to say it is going to get worse and maybe worse than we've dared to predict. And the second thing to say is there are two kinds of inflation. You know, what is this cost push inflation? which comes from rising prices and wage demands that follow and all the rest of it. The other, of course, is monetary inflation that is actually produced by governments. And and, and those that have watched this regularly will know I don't apologize for saying it again. Inflation is a disease of money caused by government. And no one's even begun to think about the vast amounts governments have borrowed across the Western world to keep our economies propped up uh, during this period of coronavirus. So I think from both ends of this, um, I, I, I think we were right to call it. Um, and I, 
I now sense, Nick, this is here for a long time. Yeah, I wrote a piece for Gold Stock Fortunes even before we started mentioning inflation in Fortune and Freedom. And uh, I pointed out how easy it was to get to double-digit inflation. And, and now that it's happening in producer price inflation, it may happen in consumer prices. It just, um, you know, this absurd and extreme example of how easily it could happen has, has suddenly come alive. Yeah. The next thing I want to ask you about this, though, is that there's this blame game that has become. Uh, and everybody's choosing a different villain here. We had President Biden in the US blaming the, the greed of, of uh, I think it was supermarkets and meat processors uh, as though their greed had suddenly increased over the last few months. Uh, we had people blaming OPEC and, and the refusal to, to pump more oil. We had people blaming the Bank of, of England and, and the central banks around the world. Uh, and then there's also, of course, this argument about supply chains and COVID lockdowns and all that. Where do you think the blame lies so far? And do you think, you know, we've had this spark of inflation, uh, which can be caused by things like cost push, push inflation and supply chain breakdown. Does, is the monetary inflation coming next? Well, that's my fear. That is my fear. My fear is that those that rule us, those that govern us, um, have forgotten some of the old rules of economics. Rules... Uh, that actually were proven to be true. We did all this back in the 80s. You know, some people thought Milton Friedman was an old nutcase. Well, he was certainly eccentric, but I think in terms of how you manage inflation, and yes, let's not kid ourselves, dealing with inflation was the most unpleasant tasting medicine with some very big side effects. And, you know, there's no way you can sugarcoat this, but I think Friedman proved that big increases in money supply lead to inflation. And we have just been through two years of massive, outside World War II, unprecedented increases in money creation by governments. Truth is, it's been going on since 2008, actually. I mean, you know, that's the reality of it, but it's been much worse in the last two years. So, yes, I think that monetary inflation is something, and again, I'll tell you what will happen. We'll be calling this, we'll be understanding this, and governments and central banks will be in denial until at some point later this year, they have to put their hands up and recognize modern monetary theory. This is what they've all been caught up in, is a complete load of, uh, excuse my words carefully, baloney. There we are, that's applied. Um, and I think at some point there's gonna be a realization and there's gonna be, I'm gonna guess by this time next year, there'll be a different macroeconomic debate going on. And there'll be a lot more people, Nick, talking about the things you and I are talking about today. I doubt that they're stupid enough to believe this, because like you said, we, we learned these lessons. There's a, there's a little bit of a political story going on here behind the scenes, I think. Uh, let's move on, though, to uh, a topic that I think really pokes us in the eye at fortune and freedom. And uh, the publisher requested this because of that. I'm going to quote here from a Bloomberg story, and then I'll get your reaction. The Financial Conduct Authority is proposing to restrict marketing of crypto assets to only wealthy and experienced investors, part of a broader push to strengthen consumer protections around high-risk investments. What's your response? I mean, I, I can't, I mean, of course there will be fraudsters out there in the system, as there are in any system, and we know that, and we deplore that. Uh, but when you really look at it, you know, in America, in America, I mean, our parent company, Agora, are massive. But there are many, many firms in America doing the kind of thing that we're doing. 
There aren't many in the UK doing it. And South Bank is by far the biggest, the most experienced, the longest established. But I want to say this uh, to all the Fortune and Freedom readers and viewers, that we have, that we did actually going right back to December. So 13 months ago, you know, introduce the concept of crypto to try and explain to people why it was happening. Uh, we've, we've updated people on its broader adoption in the USA, but we've never for one minute hidden the fact that the short-term market movements are, you know, a roller coaster. It doubles, it halves, it doubles, it halves. It keeps going up overall, but, but we've never hidden it from people. All we've really done is to expose our investors to the fact that it exists, to tell them how to get involved in it without getting ripped off. And that's really one of the main reasons that we're here, I think, for people. Um, but we've also always said to people, you know, if you want to have a go at this, make sure it's a very small percentage of your portfolio. So they can attack all they like, Nick. I feel uh, that in conjunction with all my advisors, we've been very responsible in terms of how we've handled this. And, you know, we can't guarantee that everything we say to you is going to be right. Of course we can't. But what we can do is to help you understand the things uh, that are generally kept from private investors. And, that, and in a sense, Nick, that's why we first embarked on this project. You know, 18 months ago, whenever it was, we first started working together on this. Um, and when you see the FCA uh, putting out a message like this, you realise, actually, we're on the right track. Yeah, I think cryptocurrencies really strike at the heart of, of what we're trying to do so well, and that's why we became so interested. Yeah. So this is especially interesting that um, the regulatory authorities figured that out too. Let's move on to the rerun of the Cuban Missile Crisis um, with the roles reversed, as I'm, as I'm calling it. This is all so familiar, this, this uh, Ukraine story, this idea of buffer states, as, as we said on yeah. Tuesday when we were talking about this. Um, but what do you think is going to happen next? It's, this has been going on now for a long time. You know, Ukraine broke away from the Soviet Union formally in 1994, uh, and it's been a very, very tense relationship ever since. I am, I would not want to bring Mr. Putin to meet my mum for tea on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, and what I'm about to say doesn't, as the left would always have it, make me a Putin lover. But I think we have to understand something. And it was true in the Cold War as well. During the Cold War, Russia, the Soviet Union, was a lot more frightened of us than we were of it. It was something that was very, very misunderstood. And I, at the risk of being accused of all sorts of isms here, there is a slight paranoia about the Russian government class mindset. And maybe after Napoleon and the Germans in World War II, and many other, you know, maybe you can't blame them. Maybe you can't blame them. You know, they've seen these incursions, invasions, tens of millions killed. They are very suspicious and very nervous. And in geopolitical terms, we have made vast mistakes. And I'm going to include NATO and the European Union in this. We've decided to expand ever further westward, right up to Russia's borders. Now, the defence we're given is our yes, but... All these countries wanted to join NATO. Look, if I was Ukrainian, I'd want to join NATO, probably. I mean, I get that. But from our perspective, 
If we don't understand the Russian mindset, all we are doing by talking about this eastward expansion is we are literally poking the Russian bear with a stick. It is moronic. Now, is NATO's intention to surround Russia and threaten it? Of course it isn't. But it's giving that impression. So it's a very, very stupid thing. Now, <clears throat> is Putin on the verge of invasion? I honestly don't know. I honestly, truthfully don't know. I, my sense is that he's not. But here's the irony. Biden said last night, well, I say Biden said, Biden read off a piece of paper last night, he can't speak anymore. But Biden said last night that, you know, any Russian, any further Russian military aggression you know, would be met in the strongest possible terms. He then later had to qualify that <laughs> to say that it wasn't going to be a full on military response, but it was going to be an economic response. So what are you going to do, Mr. Biden? Are you going to close down the whole of German industry? Because Germany has made itself completely reliant on Russia. And, and this is the irony of so much that has happened. 2016, the twin shots, Brexit, Trump, the liberal establishment screaming, it's all a Russian conspiracy, it's the Russians what did it, whilst all the time it was Germany and the European Union making themselves wholly dependent upon Russia. I mean, frankly, frankly, Putin has got the European Union by the short and curlies right at this moment in time. He's playing a game of cat and mouse with them. If I had to put money on it, I really had to put money on it. I don't think he's going to invade Ukraine. But we saw Georgia over a decade ago. We've seen the Crimea. It's not impossible. But either way, what are we going to do in return? I mean, seriously, what are we going to do in return? Is there an appetite in this country to send thousands of troops? We, we, we've just left, I mean, albeit in bad circumstances, but we've just left, left Afghanistan after 20 years. I don't think there's any public appetite to get involved in a war. I mean, I genuinely don't. I think in America, it's pretty much hovering along about zero as well. <clears throat> and if we put on economic sanctions, he can turn off the taps and close down German industry. So that's where we are. This is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, just a case of when domestic politics is uh, looking pretty shaky, then you just start focusing on all the foreign enemies. And surely the, I mean, you've given a, a very, not complex, but you know, quite sophisticated and a careful analysis of the geopolitics here. But and I just don't think any of them know what they're doing. Putin probably does. But uh, I think this is just a case of give me a foreign crisis because, you know, the, the domestic situation is a disaster. And of course, from Putin's perspective, now, the more there are threats about economic sanctions, the higher the price of natural gas tends to go on the market. So it's quite good for him either way. Yeah. When we talked about this on Tuesday, you said something that I found really fascinating, which is the idea of um, the idea that there's starting to, to uh, be a, a gas shortage and, and price spikes in the US now. Yes. Yeah. This is, and, really, uh, yeah, yeah. This is really interesting. So the Americans have enjoyed much cheaper gas prices, much cheaper electricity prices than we have for a very, very long time. And by the way, ours are much higher than the rest of Europe's because of the whole level of green subsidy that has been put onto this without discussion and without debate ever since 2010. That's when it really, really started. So what's been happening is the Americans have been trying to help out the rest of the world 
by shipping large amounts of gas across to Europe, across the Far East and elsewhere, which has now led to quite a big increase in the domestic price of gas in the USA. And people now beginning to you know, stand up and scream and shout in America um, about, well, what are we doing? Why are we depleting? You know, we became self-sufficient and suddenly we're now selling all this stuff and the price is going up. Um, and I think that politically, this is something the Biden administration cannot withstand. It's too difficult for them. Um, it, it would open the door to Trump, wouldn't it, in just the most amazing way, because this was his, one of Trump's achievements was this massive increase in gas production and people getting it at very, very cheap prices. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that the Americans stop exporting much of this gas because of domestic politics. Um, all of which, I think, you know, leaves us as a country uh, absolutely needing to have this debate. You know, why are we not opening up the Cambo oil field and gas field in the North Sea? <coughs> why in the Boland uh, Reserve up in the northwest of England, in Cumbria mostly, and Lancashire some, um, have we not as yet extracted a single barrel of gas when it's there in huge quantities. Why are we about to spend another 1.2 billion sterling updating the line to France, from which we import 9% of our electricity? I mean, the vulnerability of this country in terms of energy is very, very serious. And one last little point. You may have noticed, folks, the weather. Lots of frosty mornings and relief, relief after the, after the dullest December since 1956. Lots and lots of quite sunny days. But there's one thing missing in the weather so far in January. The wind is not blowing. And I've looked at the wind forecast for the next week, and the wind ain't going to blow for at least another week. And as we know from last year, when we get prolonged periods of calm, we become utterly dependent on the imports of natural gas as a backup, and indeed electricity. So I think all of these things mean there needs to be a change of conversation in this country about not just energy pricing, but energy security. And I think it's going to become a massive issue in the years to come. Uh, I'd like to add to that that the Dutch, after denying they would, ended up reopening part of the Groningen gas field production. Uh, but I think really what sums this up for me is a few months ago, I asked you whether coal stocks are the best way to play the, the green energy boom. And it looks like we were wrong, Nigel. It's gas stocks instead. Thanks very much for joining me, Nigel, and everyone at home as well. Thank you.